terrorists. For the West, the ultimate source of terror in the world, this term was a cynical convenience. The Caliph despised the Anuran tyrants, but he hated with a pure hate the Westerners who made their rule possible. This night he felt hope, not merely for himself and his followers, but for his beloved Anura. Centuries ago, visitors wrote poems evoking its beauty, but soon colonialism, fueled by envy and avarice, imposed its grim logic. What was ravishing would be ravished. The captivating made captive. Independence, they had called it. It was one of the great lies of the twentieth century. The regime itself amounted to an act of violence against the Kagama people, for which the only remedy was more violence. Of every suicide bombing, the Western media pontificated about senseless killings. But the Caliph and his soldiers knew that nothing made more sense. The most widely publicized wave of bombings, taking out civilian targets in the capital city, Caligo, had been masterminded by the Caliph. Packed with diesel-soaked nitrate fertilizer, his vans delivered cargoes of death, arousing great condemnation around the world. Now the chief radio operator whispered in the Caliph's ear. The Kafra base had been destroyed. The guards at the Stone Palace had no hope for backup. Further, a second army base had been reclaimed by the people, and a second thoroughfare was now theirs. The Caliph felt his spine begin to tingle. Within hours, the entire province of Kenna would be wrested from a despotic death grip. Nothing, however, was more important than taking the Stone Palace. Nothing. The go-between had been emphatic about it, and so far the go-between had been right about everything. He had also been generous with armaments and intelligence. The Caliph's victory would become the stuff of legend, but his debt to the go-between would remain a matter between him and Allah. The go-between had not disappointed the Caliph and the caliph would not disappoint him. "'It's still cold!' Arjun cried out with delight as he picked up the beer can. His thick fingers scrabbled for the pull tab, then gave it a firm yank. The muffled pop of the detonator came milliseconds before the twelve ounces of plastique in the can exploded in a shattering blast of light and sound. The shock waves destroyed the wooden roadside booth, the barracks, and those who slept there. Fifteen minutes later, a convoy of canvas-topped personnel carriers made its way without incident through what remained of the checkpoint. Through his binoculars, the caliph contemptuously surveyed the honor guards arrayed before the stone palace's main gate. The compound's nighttime illumination rendered them sitting ducks. They were showmen, not warriors, playthings. Each held a rifle braced upright on his shoulder, where it would look impressive and be perfectly useless. A member of the Caliph's retinue presented him with a rifle. The Caliph would fire the first shot of the revolution. He found the number one guard in the weapon's scope and squeezed the trigger. On the man's chest a small oval of red bloomed. Now the Caliph's detail loosed a brief, well-aimed fusillade. Marionettes released from their strings, the seven officers collapsed. By sunrise, Kenna would no longer be part of the illegitimate Republic of Anura. Kenna would belong to him. Many would die in the battle, but there was one person in the stone palace who would not be killed. Not yet. He was a powerful man, revered by millions, who had come to the island in an attempt to broker a peace. But he was an agent of neocolonialism nevertheless, so he had to be treated with care. For him, the proper niceties would be observed. And then he would be beheaded as the criminal he was. The revolution would be nourished on his blood.
carved out between the structural girders and beams of Chicago's O'Hare Airport, rested Pacifica Airlines' Platinum Club. At a granite-topped beverage station were crystal jugs of peach nectar and fresh-squeezed orange juice. On round tables interspersed among large, luxurious armchairs were newspapers, magazines, and savory snacks. At the dataport stations, brand managers and account executives huddled over their laptops. Paul Jansen settled heavily into one of the armchairs. No one gave him a second look. For Jansen, it was a point of pride that he seldom got a second look. Though he was athletic and solidly built, his appearance was utterly unremarkable. With his creased forehead, short-cropped steel-gray hair, and slate eyes, he looked his five decades. He knew how to make himself all but invisible. Even his expensively tailored gray worsted suit was perfect camouflage, as appropriate to the corporate jungle as the green and black...